journalism very much is a moral business. Obviously, there's economics involved. You have to make money somehow uh, to sustain yourself. But it is uh, much more a moral business than anything else. So articulating your moral outlook, basically, is an um, obvious place to start for me. Hi, you're listening to The Idealists. I'm Simon. Together with my co-host Celia, we explore the new narrative in business. We talk to people who lead by example and sometimes become role models for their entire industry, like Rob Weinberg, for example. Think about your daily news grind. It's probably a mix of websites, social media feeds and the occasional newspaper. One thing they all have in common? They're paid by advertisers. And when your news anchor is in business of grabbing your attention, you optimize for sensationalism. Rob was pretty frustrated, so he and his team started working on an antidote back in 2013. Rob, who studied philosophy in Amsterdam and shortly after became the youngest editor-in-chief of Netherlands' premier daily newspaper, had a vision. Unbreaking news. The Correspondent is an online platform offering high-quality journalism and aiming to shift focus from the sensational to the foundational. A news platform that optimizes for trust instead of clicks seemed somewhat utopian. So we asked Rob, is it offensive to call you an idealist? No, not at all. No, uh, I actually very much agree with your uh, tagline that you just explained, where idealism is somehow seen as naivete or something like that. If you look closely, um, idealists are usually a little bit a front runner on what actually becomes realism decades later, mm -hmm. something like that. So no, it's a, it's a compliment for me. Great. <laughs> so we're not going to kick out uh, immediately. No. <laughs> and talking about front running, you founded this whole thing 2013. And this was more of a Dutch venture because you are have a big background in, in Dutch media, I would say. Um, and now in uh, 2019, you relaunching that kind of or, or building something upon of it. Yeah. Just run us through very quickly. If you talk about front running, what was that in 2013, which you set out to do? For me, what I'm doing with the correspondent started a little bit before we actually launched the correspondent because I was editor in chief of a daily print newspaper before that, um, from 2010 to 2012. And basically we tried to do two things there. Uh, one is redefine news in a way that gives you more insight into how the world actually works instead of focusing on sensational, exceptional events um, that go on all the time, but don't really tell you about like structural, fundamental, foundational issues. Because news, in a sense, gives you a picture of the world of all the things that are not happening every day. They're happening today, but they're not happening every day. And because they're not happening every day, they're not as influential as the news makes them out to be. So that was one thing I tried to change while being editor-in-chief of the print newspaper. And the other thing, which was harder to change because uh, it was on print, mm -hmm. mostly, was try to make use of the knowledge and experience and expertise of readers. Um, over a century, journalism has been a one-way street. We find the facts or we find the story, then we write the story or we make a TV item out of it. We tell you the story, that's it, we go home. But there's an enormous amount of untapped knowledge and uh, experience 
amongst your audience, and we don't like the word audience because audience is a passive mm. consumer kind of attitude. Uh, we, we try to tap into that knowledge to benefit our journalism, which obviously brings us to online mm. because it's much easier to do online than on, on print to do that, to communicate with your readers. Um, uh, so we tried to do that at the newspaper. I got fired. <laughs> Because of that, or was that? Do you do you try to change that within the organization? Basically, yeah. Basically, well, it boiled down to an ideological difference about what news should be about. Right. Uh, when I was fired, they said we need more news in the newspaper, and I was like, we have news in the newspaper. It's not. It's just not the news you're used to, or that you can kind of see everywhere, right? right? Um, and it was quite successful. So when when I left the newspaper, a lot of um, subscribers to the newspaper kind of went with me. Mm -hmm. So I left the newspaper and that's when we started the correspondent in the Netherlands with a crowdfunding because also we knew two things. We wanted to be ad-free because that gives you a very different business model that allows you not to chase clicks, but to um, kind of establish a new sort of relationship with your reader. And um, uh, yeah, we knew it had to be online. So uh, did a crowdfunding in 2013, set a world record in, in crowdfunding, journalism crowdfunding, which we were very proud of, yeah. uh, raised 1.3 million euros in in a month, and then started our platform. And uh, we started with almost 19,000 founding members, so the, the people who joined before we were live. And now we have, in the Netherlands, we have a little over 60,000 members uh, that joined. Right. How is that possible to, to go from a kind of employee role with such amount a great amount of people supporting you how did you build up this recognition or or, or audience or, or people following you and and supporting that i wrote a lot about media in the newspaper i was uh, kind of kind of well known as the editor because i also was the youngest editor-in-chief in europe of a of a national newspaper so i was 27 when we when i became editor-in-chief so that helped mm -hmm. <laughs> Also, my my firing was in the news, <laughs> so sometimes news helps. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, here's here's what sparked the idea in the first place. When I was at the newspaper, uh, the the one thing that struck me most was how interesting my colleagues were, how interesting the stories they talked about at the coffee machine or the water cooler were, and then how boring mm -hmm. the newspaper they made was. Well, there was a, yeah, yeah. There was, it was a, just a huge difference. And my idea was, if you give journalists more autonomy and more freedom to write what they th really think is important, instead of having them chase whatever is in the news, as it, as it is called, um, you'll get much more um, investigative, much more interesting, much more engaging journalism. Um, so that was basically my model. When I started The Correspondent, I asked journalists or writers, not just journalists, also uh, other professions, uh, to join. And I said, well, here you go. What do you think we need to talk about, write about, etc.? And from that um, starting point came the, the most intriguing stories because there was no concept in journalism that a lot of non-journalists don't know about, but almost all traditional news journalism has, has to have a hook, mm -hmm. as it is called. Like it, ha it, it has to be something that happened today or some person f from the elite saying something mm -hmm. or a report coming out. 80%, 85% of news is 
events. Mm-hmm. Most of them also staged events, like press conferences, etc. That's the reason why you can talk about it in the, in the newspaper. But if you leave out that hook, uh, you can tell very different stories that, m- that might not seem current mm-hmm. uh, in the traditional sense of the word, but are very current for people's lives, right? Uh, there's no reason to talk about sugar addiction on a day-to-day basis, but it is a very prominent phenomenon all over the world. It's, it's the reason, reason why most people die in the world, actually. So if you change, fundamentally change the, um, the premise of news, basically, you can talk about very different things. And with that kind of funding on board and the people you want to you wanna invite to that, that journey, how was that first years when just focusing on, on a Dutch system media market? Crazy, <laughs> basically. Um, for one thing, one, one reason why it's crazy is uh, we had no idea what we were doing. We knew what we wanted and we knew why we wanted to do it. There were no, not many leading examples. Uh, and this is six years ago. So it's a lot changed. Mm-hmm. Like there are many great online only journalism platforms that focus on different kinds of, of news and information. But back then, especially in the Netherlands, Not many examples. Mo- mo- online was dominated by the traditional media. Uh, those traditional media were doing the same thing as they were doing for 150 years. So we were just doing whatever we thought was necessary. Um, and it worked uh, for uh, many reasons. But I think the m- most prominent reason is we really tried to um, reestablish the um, relationship with readers. And um, that's why we, we don't call our um, readers subscribers. We call them members. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a subtle difference. Uh, subscribers pay for a product to get the product, to get access or whatever, exclusive content or something like that. Um, members join your cause, which is a very different mindset. First of all, they become a member because they support the kind of journalism you do, the outlook you have, the, um, the things you want to investigate, the things you find important, the, f- the things you find less important, etc. That's why they join. Uh, and then actually joining has a, a double meaning because they can also join in different ways, not just by paying and reading, but they can join by helping. Um, figuring stuff out, sharing uh, their uh, day-to-day experiences at their jobs, uh, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So you get a different sense of what you are subscribing to, quote-unquote, if the very definition of the relationship is different. So I think that's a big part of what was new. And that was part of the DNA from the start. From the start, excuse me. And, um, And it was also... It, 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 now it's much more common. You've seen many different uh, um, platforms do such a thing and yeah. also involve readers in journalism is much more, more common. More community building. Community building, yes. But back then, it was still very much the traditional media model of you have advertisers who pay basically pay for the product and then um, most of the news is for free. You just consume it whenever you want. Um And um, uh, that's why clicks became so, page views, all those things became so important. Um, We tried to really um, differentiate ourselves 
uh, from that. And there was not, not many examples. So we were just trying it, see what worked and what didn't work. Building that community on the way and apparently it caught on. We're sitting here years, yeah. years later <laughs> yeah. and uh, you, you also launched the international version in, yes. in English. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit more about the difference between the two or the similarities between those two. The similarities are um, 90% mm. because it's based on the same founding principles. It's ad-free. Uh, we're transparent about our worldview instead of pretending to be objective, uh, which is still a very much a, a common ideal in journalism. Um, we focus on the same kind of foundational issues instead of the incidents of the day. Um, uh, we are author-centered, so um, the name, the correspondent refers to this. There's a um, There's an author, a person there who investigates something with you uh, because he or she finds it important to investigate. It's not just uh, this is in the news or we don't have beats like, um, I don't know, foreign news or mm -hmm. in economy or sports or whatever. Topics that kind of convey also the... Um, The, the reasons why the journalist mm -hmm. is interested in the first yeah. place. And mm -hmm. your correspondence has then the titles like for sanity and for climate and for numeracy. So this kind of more on a, on a more meta level than focusing on those traditional uh, kind of silos of news, sports. Exactly. Yeah. Also because it's trying to um, shift the perspective on the world a little bit. Uh, if it's, I don't know, mental health, that would be a more traditional way of framing it. If you say sanity, mm. uh, there's a different ring to it. There's a different perspective. Uh, so those are the similarities. Obviously, the biggest difference is, is that it is in a different language and, and English is a much bigger language than, than uh, Dutch. Um, our potential uh, reach is much, much bigger in English. And also, um, it's a way to do transnational journalism, mm -hmm. Uh, based on the idea that if you really look at the foundational uh, developments in the world, a lot of them are not bound to nations anymore. Mm -hmm. Climate change is not bound to nations. Um, protests are not bound to nations. Politics isn't bound to nations. All, all these things. Uh, money isn't bound to nations anymore. So if you really want to describe the world as it is, there has to be some kind of transnational aspect to it. And it's much easier to do in a, in a language that is transnational like English than, than Dutch. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the biggest differences is also we get input from all over the world, mm -hmm. which broadens your perspectives on issues a lot. Like um, if you talk from a v Dutch national perspective of climate change, um, there's just so much you can say. Mm -hmm. But if you uh, do it in English and uh, you have experts from all over the world and experts could also be like, a farmer mm -hmm. from Norway mm -hmm. or uh, a scientist from Peru or something like that, and they join the conversation, then the whole um, kinds of stories you can tell are very different. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about the founding principles? Mm -hmm. You mentioned that before. Um, I think it's quite special to communicate it as you do it, to explain a little bit more how this came about. Yeah, I, I think it's really weird that it is special mm -hmm. because to me, the most obvious place to start uh, when I founded The Correspondent was why uh, do we want this to be here? So the founding principles articulate the why, basically. Uh, they also articulate a little bit about how, mm -hmm. but basically it's the values that we are founded on. And 
I think a lot of companies could benefit from su such an idea about why they're uh, in existence, but especially journalism, media companies, because journalism very much is a moral business. Uh, obviously, there's economics involved. You have to have you have to make money somehow uh, to sustain yourself, but it is uh, much more a moral business than anything else. So, articulating your moral outlook basically is an obvious place to start for me. So it's weird. Uh, and um, I mean, there, there are these values implicit in a lot of media companies, a lot of traditional newspapers, etc. They're usually quite vague uh, quality or um, protecting democracy or something like that. Huge, big. Can be super abstract. Yes, can, can be super abstract. Uh, and, and also quality like any newspaper mm. will tell you they they have quality. Otherwise, they would, it's very generic. Yeah. So articulating more specifically what we are about was, um, for me, a very obvious thing to do. Mm -hmm. And um, especially because if you want people to join whatever you're doing uh, for some reason and pay for it, then that has to be absolutely clear. And I think a lot of um, this trust in media that you see all over the world stems from... Basically two things. One, it's not clear what this newspaper or this media platform or whatever uh, stands for exactly. And then also they stand for something. You can't, there always is an ideology or, or a worldview in place. You can't view the world without a perspective. So the whole idea of objectivity saying, no, no, we're neutral. We don't have a perspective. Um, we just give you the facts. You make up your mind about them or something like that uh, feeds into this distrust because you're, you're just denying <laughs> constantly mm -hmm. or implicitly that you have a, um, a moral outlook. And we, which is a weird thing for me to do because um, the moral outlook is what is the starting point of all journalism. You're, you're not covering, I don't know, crime or terrorism uh, just because it happened. Mm. You cover it because you think it's bad or you think it's noteworthy or you think it has to stop or you think it's uh, an injustice or something like that. So starting with your sense of injustice or whatever gives the reader or member or subscriber the opportunity to say, this is the kind of journalism I think the world needs and I will support. And talking about the principles, what's, what's happening now is, or when you are as clear about your principle as you are, what's happening is that your members call you out on that, right? They say- Totally, yeah, and you, they should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe that's a, probably a reason why other businesses refrain from that because that's uh, an, an additional risk that you know they can get called out on uh, yeah. what they once said, you know? Maybe, yeah. could be, right. but it's also the other way around. It's mm -hmm. also mitigating a risk in the sense that um, you can also refer to your founding principles mm. as justifications for what you do or don't do. Right. So, so it just brings some clarity to the discussion. And um, you, you see a lot of, like, when, when uh, newspapers or other media are criticized, they, they feel attacked. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, there is a small portion of criticism that is really just attacking media for the for the worst reasons um i mean I'm, i'm not saying that like for example in the united states the polarization towards media fake news blah 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 that's just a political fight that's being fought but a lot of criticism uh you can 
actually learn something from it. And maybe if the attacks keep come or the criticism keeps coming, you need a better answer or uh, engage in more dialogue about why you do what you do. So um, it gives you the opportunity. It's a risk, but it also gives you an opportunity to be transparent mm -hmm. to the people who criticize you. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example when when a situation like this arose, when you said, okay, uh, yes, we, we set out to do this and now they're calling us out on that? Oh, well, it ha kind of happens all the time. Mm -hmm. um, on the platform, below every piece, mm -hmm. uh, I mean not non-stop some <laughs> if a piece is really good then then people will compliment you for it but if a piece is not that good uh they will say well is this really a foundational issue you're talking about or you uh, you are actually um uh overhyping like other media or for example our um one of our founding principles is, is that we fight stereotypes because news is all about stereotypes and not just race or gender, but also like politicians or the elite or whatever. And it's really difficult to dismantle stereotypes and not use them as well. They, they be, they're stereotypes for a reason. They become very common. And it's part of our communication. It makes communication possible in a way. Exactly. Right? So sometimes we're called out on that. Like, are you um, peddling a stereotype yourself mm. here? Or um, what is the basis for your, your, your wording or stuff like that? And also if we call ourselves out on it so i don't know uh we are strictly ad free mm. so we can't do any partnership there, there are a lot of partnerships based on well if i do, do this for you then you'll give me some media attention but we can't do that so it's a constant kind of mirror for ourselves also mm. to see does this coincide with the principles we uphold. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the if you have talk about the relationship to your members it's also about how you make business, right? And your, just to make this very clear, you, you say to your members, you can pay us anything you can afford, I think is the wording. Yeah, on the, on the international. On the international one. How is it in the Dutch one? Uh, it's seven euros a month okay. or 70 euros a year. So there it's, it's a fixed price, yes. but we thought internationally, I mean, um, it's almost impossible to find a fixed price that is uh, affordable to mm -hmm. anyone in and, the world. And what led to the decision to make it Up to the people to decide what is news worth to them. Well, basically three things, actually. Um, we trust people that they um, uh, pay a fair amount, basically, uh, which they do. Uh, second, it's um, more fair in the sense that uh, anyone can join. Uh, so, for example, we, had a, we just had a, an email from a student, Hong Kong, I think, uh, who said... Hey, I became a member for one dollar. <laughs> I'm sorry, he said. Mm. Uh, it's not much, but it's all I can afford. But when I have more money to spend, mm. I will um, raise my membership fee. So the, the alternative was he can't afford it, so he won't join. Right. Now he joined. Mm -hmm. And although one dollar is not much, it's something. And the threshold is paying something, right. basically. Yeah. You have to understand that if you want to keep news or journalism independent, Uh, not run by ads or stuff like that, um, then you have to pay yourself. That's that's the premise. Mm -hmm. How much you pay, however, is basically a mixture of how much you think it's worth and how much you can afford. Mm -hmm. So in the end, the mean is pretty much the same yeah. because some people pay a lot more, some people pay a lot less. So, so there's an element of solidarity there, basically. If you can afford $200 or yeah. $500 a year, uh, then you allow other people to pay a little less, yeah. which is a beautiful system. Yeah. As you say, it's a it's a beautiful concept, and even more beautiful if someone kind of risks 
to, to go that way and is rewarded with, okay, we can run a sustainable business up on that yeah. layer of trust. Yeah, it's also maybe th this, this ties to a more fundamental kind of part of our DNA. Mm -hmm. And actually we just, we published a book uh, from one of our most read authors, Rutger Bregman, mm -hmm. called De Meeste Mensen Deugen, which means uh, most people uh, are good, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. It's not a great translation in Dutch, it sounds right. better, but <laughs> um, I mean, people can do bad things, but um, most people do the right thing in most situations. Mm -hmm. So here's the basic premise. If you, distrust of media is also kind of affected by distrusting your audience, right? So if you think about, and this is how we phrase it internally often, is um, if you optimize for trust, not clicks, not ads, not revenue or something, but if you optimize for trust, what would your model or your practices look like? And this is one of those, one of those things where you say, well, if you assume that people will do what they think is right mm. and is best for you, leave them the freedom and autonomy to do it, then they will, basically. Right. And, and it shows because people pay what they think is fair. Do you think it helped not to have a legacy and be a challenger and new in, in the media scene back then? So you get the first chance and then you can uh, walk the walk and show them we're different? Totally. Actually, a uh, crucial ingredient uh, that you cannot uh, underestimate Um I, we try to do several of these um, new things at a traditional newspaper, and it was hard um, because you are you were always competing with practices that everybody already knew. So that that's one. And also, uh, if it became successful, then usually it uh, was to a bigger disadvantage of something else in the company. So so a lot of uh, new ideas or innovation in a traditional structure um, get beaten down. Because of two things, either it's not successful enough and they stop it, or it's very successful and then it becomes a threat internally, basically. So not having any legacy, not having um, the way we do things is a crucial ingredient to trying new things. And also crowdfunding is a great way to raise money. It's not, it's not a business model in and of itself, but it's a great way to start um, because Here you have, I don't know, 10,000 or 15,000 or in our case, 19,000 people who say, go, show me, uh, here's my trust, basically, which uh, allows you to do things that are not proven yet. You're not sure it will work. Mm. Um, and if you have to kind of uh, go to an investor, then he wants some guarantees, right? He wants to see uh, a business model or a business plan, and he wants to know uh, in what quarter the earnings will become higher or when there will be profit, etc. If you have a member, a membership that is not interested in return on investment except for great journalism, and they give you some money to try, it frees up all kinds of pressures um, that allow you to do things that are really new, not just sound new, but they are really new. And, and that is very hard because people obviously tend to buy into or recognize or uh, like to stick to the things they know inherently like it's not it's not a conservative progressive thing or something like that people just do it's that a human thing. it's a human thing right and do you then think do you believe in transformation in what sense for example that traditional media companies can change they can change um but they're usually 
forced to change. It's it's um, they rarely change because of themselves. Mm. Um, there are all kinds of pressures to change them. I don't want to put a number on it, but like half of them will change because they won't survive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's their change. They will disappear. Uh, and and it's also like you know the the window of Overton. Do, do, have you heard of it? It's it's. Uh, actually your tagline, basically. What seems radical uh, in the beginning pushes the boundaries of what becomes normal in the end. Mm -hmm. Everything that is status quo right now was completely out of order and radical at some point in history. Mm -hmm. um, so basically this, this happens with companies or institutions or media platforms or, and stuff like that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the, same, it's the same logic, I think. And staying with the kind of business model here for a second, You also said that from the beginning that, that you have this uh, 5% cap, dividend cap on your, on your business, which means that if you think through it uh, from a Silicon Valley mindset, this is kind of madness to put a cap on, on, uh, on a dividend or, or mm -hmm. make that not a potentially disrupting a company. What led to that decision? And you also have uh, investors on board, though. And I think that one is the Luminate which is uh, from the founder of eBay, mm -hmm. I think the for-profit and not-for-profit um, fund um, supporting your company as well. Um, can you maybe talk about that decision to make that cap mm -hmm. and the other way around to also be able to get that, you know, runway funding uh, on board and really sure. that? Um, first of all, we are a for-profit company and deliberately so. We don't want to be a charity because a charity... There are great charities, but we don't think journalism should be a charity um, in a philosophical sense of the word. It's not something you give to, I don't know, just for um, uh, moral sentiments or at Christmas or something like that. It has to also deliver something. There is a commercial economic logic in place that it has to give you at least a product or a platform or a story that you wanted to pay for outside of moral obligations or whatever. So for-profit company. Yet we did a, a dividend cap of 5%. And it's pretty symbolic because uh, we've never taken any profits. All the profits have been, um, inv have been invested back into journalism. So on paper, we act like a charity because there's no profits mm -hmm. Uh, to shareholders. Um, and also our in investors are also non-profits that don't expect, they don't expect return. Mm -hmm. um, they want us to exist, basically. And they helped uh, us um, into existence. But the profit cap ensures that we are not interesting at all to investors that are only in it for the return on their investment. So, uh, and you see a lot, I've, I've seen this uh, up close where a investor took over the, the newspaper I was working at and then started demanding higher returns every year. Mm -hmm. And the result, short, the, I mean, the short-term result is very predictable. You fire people to lower costs because it's very hard to make a higher and higher profit on investigative journalism in the first place. It's not a very profitable business. If you, if you want to get rich, then you should sell refrigerators or something like that. Uh, not, not investigative journalism. Actually, it's kind, it's kind of like, um, in that sense, it's a very much a public service because 
um, uh, it's like healthcare or like education, the better you do, the the more inefficient it becomes. Mm-hmm. If if you healthcare, if is is w- well served by having a lot of attention to your for your patient, a lot of time. You can't make having time How to for optimize somebody. it. Yeah, you can't make it more efficient. Yeah. So in a sense, journalism is, is in the same. The more time you have, the more you can investigate something, uh, the less efficient it becomes. So having a investor pressure of that kind is a very bad thing, I yeah. think, for journalism. Having no pressure at all, that's why we are a for-profit company, having no pressure at all of thinking, how can we be valuable beyond a charity for our um, members, you should have some of it. So you end up exactly in the middle. You are a for-profit company. You you look at uh, your journalism also as a business case, but not something that maximizes profits in the end. Mm-hmm. It's profitable, but not maximizing profits. And that is maybe for the last topic, very closely then I think related to the way um, it is set up technologically, because in the beginning you talked about you do you can do different journalism with a medium internet right mm-hmm. and i think one way where this whole news vicious cycle uh, started was that we had algorithms in place who were kind of denuancing the opinion on what is newsworthy and not you know there was like very much uh, an emphasis on what is you know Uh, what's what's the surprising, what's, you know, uh, outrageous, what is uh, cute, you know, just put it into the extremes. Um, And just from a technological point of view, how would you say are you working that differently? Because you have to curate or show your articles somehow as well, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, so many ways, but it's a very complicated question. But um, uh, let me try to be as concise as possible. First of all, um, the idea that the internet made journalism about, uh, I don't know, going viral or et cetera, uh, by emphasizing the, um, I don't know, sensational stuff or et cetera. It's not the internet that did. I mean, that was in journalism uh, all along, mm-hmm. ad-driven journalism. It just made it more transparent how successful you were at it. You could see more instantly if something was read or not read, etc. The clear so, return. Yeah, exactly. So so because it made it more transparent, um, it made it more important in a sense. Uh, but the idea of reaching as many people as possible and is in journalism, ad-driven journalism from the beginning. So mm-hmm. sensationalism is not a new thing. It got worse mm-hmm. um, because of the algorithms, but it was already in place in a sense. Um, so a lot of things that we try to do to, to differentiate ourselves from those pressures you see online. One is we have a very strict privacy policy. Mm. So where the um, trend almost anywhere in the world, especially in media, is collect as much data about your readers and audiences as possible. We don't do that. Um, We don't want any privacy-sensitive demographic information about you, not just because it's private, but also it will steer you towards, I don't know, reaching affluent 35-year-olds that, I don't know, something like that. So you write for them in the beginning, in the first place, maybe? Well, you write for somebody, always. There's always a choir you're Mm -hmm. preaching to because that's, yeah, if you're preaching 
and journalism in a sense is preaching, then 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 there there will be a choir. But most data driven uh, companies turn it around. They say, okay, let's find out everything about our audience or choir, and then do that. Right. Bad idea. So that's that's a mindset we don't have. We try to be independent of our audience by not trying to serve them whatever they're asking. That's right. one. Um, and a second thing, which is also important, is we uh, try to emphasize at any possible uh, juncture on our platform and outside of our platform, you have a different role on our platform than just consuming and spreading the news, basically. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have a soft paywall. As a member, you can go on the platform, you can see everything, uh, you can share any article that we right? If you're not a member, you can read any article that is shared. It says, mm -hmm. this article has been given to you as a gift by paying member and then the name of the member. So uh, you, if you want, you don't have to pay anything. You can read any, every, everything. Uh, but there is a sense of, hey, there's somebody who paid for it that mm. gave it to you, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, that's one way. The other way is people can uh, um, add their expertise. So you can see I'm not just commenting or whatever, uh, uh, um, giving my opinion, which is usually uh, quite polarizing. Mm -hmm. No, we emphasize, please give what you know, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. please share your experience with us so we can use this, mm. uh, which creates a very different atmosphere. So if you if you look at comment sections on, on social media or on uh, other news worst. platforms, it's the worst. Mm. And I mean, that's because... If you know something valuable, interesting, you have experience, you have expertise, and you share it there, what, what happens? Mm. You're e either uh, crowded out by people who think they know, but they don't, or and the, and the journalist is not there, they're not using it, it's not, mm. um, uh, you're but not a in dialogue. a conversation, there's no, no dialogue. So, so what do you end up with? People who want to talk anyway, regardless of its effects, <laughs> basically. Mm -hmm. So if you change the, the very attitude, for example, uh, journalist being in the comment section uh, from the start, engaging with people, asking questions, using the information that is shared there, then the whole atmosphere becomes a very different one. So um, my point is that it's not a given how social media or the internet uh, uh, works or how it evolves, with which direction it goes into. It's also a choice or a design and an attitude that goes with it, that makes it go one way or the other. So I think we can do a lot to kind of get back on track of the initial promise of the internet, which was very different than what it turned out to be, um, by also kind of changing the parameters and um, the criteria and uh, the design of platforms like ours, uh, to serve different purposes or uh, less polarizing purposes or more collaborative purposes than we have right now. That's just basically a choice, but, it's, but it already starts with the business model, obviously. If you're Facebook and your business model is selling ads, uh, then you have very different incentives to build tools uh, than if you don't have ads. And the only thing we want to think about is how do we make collaboration online even more feasible. What is the ideal future for the correspondent? <laughs> um, a lot of people ask me uh, how many members 
do you think you can have or something? And I, I always find it a very strange question because it's kind of like, you know, it will end somewhere, mm. but you don't want, it's like dying. You know, you'll die, but, but you don't ask somebody, how old do you think you're going to be? Mm. Nobody wants to think about that. <laughs> so my ideal future is to obviously um, grow the community of members we have to build on the foundational promises we give them, which is to uh, build an, uh, a place online where you don't share outrage, where you don't share indignation, where you don't share hate or sensationalism or all those kinds of stuff, but where you where you are able to share knowledge about how the world works in order for us to understand more deeply uh, uh, how the world works and because of that understanding, having more power to shape where the world is going. It's very much basically, uh, um, and I wrote a piece about this, on why we consider ourselves to be a progressive uh, platform, not necessarily in the sense of a political, like left-leaning platform, but a progressive platform nonetheless. It's because we, are, we believe that uh, progress is driven by a deepening understanding of how the world functions. And um, we believe that um, that understanding deepens if you share knowledge between people. That's how actually our species, human beings, became such a force on the planet. We are the best sharers of information. So uh, building a journalistic environment where that is the essence um, hopefully will make for a better world uh, because of it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, rate the show on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or maybe just tell someone about it. You can find all episodes on theidealists.co. As always, here's our last question. Who should we talk to next? I have two in mind. One, his name is Peter Zwart. And he is the founder of Cool Blue. And Cool Blue basically is um, the Dutch Amazon. It's much smaller, obviously, than Amazon. Now, this might seem like, why would you <laughs> ask the founder of a household appliances uh, company for the idealist? But he has a very different worldview than we just discussed. But very much the same in other respects. So he looks at the world in a completely consumer-oriented, data-driven way. No founding principles or whatever, <laughs> but just his, his slogan is something like everything for a smile. He just sells smiles. If you smile when you shop at him, then that's, that's it. That's his only reason. The other uh, is um, a friend of the correspondent, friend of mine as well, Alexander Klipping, who you might know as the founder of Blendl. And Blendl is a media company that wants to be the Spotify of news. So they're a kiosk. Their mission is there's an, enough journalism already. He told me, you don't need to make new journalism. There's enough journalism out there, but it's not accessible to most people, especially people who have uh, grown up online. So he has a kiosk model of journalism, which is very successful. Um, also very different mindset, but um, the same ideals 
journalistic ideals behind it. 